Howdy, howdy, motherfuckers. It's the Five Figures Podcast. I believe this is episode number six now. It is currently the 26th of May, 2022, 7 p.m. on the fucking dot. Six days since I made the last one, which happened right before 157, 157, the 157th numbered event in one. So, yeah, that occurred. Yes, I, I recorded that podcast literally an hour before that event started, and then I watched most of it. So I figure we should probably just start straight off the bat, because recently I've been going for a little too long. I feel like I've been going for about 100 and... 100? What am I talking about? Uh, going for like 70 minutes, an hour, an hour and 10 minutes, and it's a, it's a little excessive. You don't need to hear my voice for that long. Let's Let's kind of just get to the point straight off of the gate. And so, first and foremost, we're going to, yeah, we're just going to mainly talk about, I mean, we should probably talk about Holm versus Vieira, not the main event, fuck no, the main event was atrocious, but uh, we will, there are some fights on there that we need to address, but first and foremost, let's just start with 1-157, because it has a bunch of bangers on it, Pet Morricot took on uh, Jimmy Venot in the main event, and that was a split decision, I thought Pet Morricot won that pretty yeah, I, I thought he won that. He took home the belt. Sensational. But there are bigger fights on this card to talk about. There are there are bigger fucking fish to fry on this card. What do we have? Nat Durensak, Wonder Girl. She made her mixed martial arts debut. She's Muay Thai practitioner. She transitioned over from Muay Thai and she submitted Asha... Asha no, not Asha Rocker. Uh, Zeba... Zeba Beno, who I, I hadn't heard of before, but Beno's it's six and O or was six and O in mixed martial arts. So it it appeared it appeared on initial uh, on the initial analysis that this motherfucker isn't a complete bum. That Beno's is actually kind of not legit legit, but not a complete scrub. And yeah, Wonder Girl came in and choked did she choke her out? I, she submitted her. Yeah, no, she got an armbar. She got a motherfucking armbar. And it happened real early as well. It was a minute and 22 seconds into the first round. It was a little bit wild. Obviously, I think if you're a fan of Nat Jurensak, you probably wanted to see more of the striking in a mixed martial arts context. But, yeah, fuck it. You know, let's get a quick sub for your mixed martial arts debut. Why don't you? I mean, I guess. Yeah, then after that we had Muhammad Butasa taking on da David Kiria. I'm butchering everyone's name already, straight out the motherfucking gate. Holy shit, I like this Butasa kid. It, it looked from the get-go that Kiria was a little bit overmatched. Butasa came in undefeated, he's 14-0. His abs could cut ice. Jesus Christ. Man looked jacked to the tits. And, yeah, the height differential was pretty fucking significant. From the get-go, it looked like Kyria had to leap into the pocket if he wanted to land anything. And that just didn't seem productive. Butasa, yeah, his push kicks, incredibly long. Had some good switch shots. A nice one-two from Orthodox. First round was Butasa's... Yeah, I mean, he got a unanimous decision, rightfully so. In my notes, I just I just noted down a bunch of shit that he was doing, and it was all pretty fucking dope. He just had incredible volume, particularly in that second round. Great push kicks to the face. He had some awesome hooks to the body. A beautiful straight left to the body from Southpaw. Just, just dope, yeah. He, he won a 30-27 unanimous decision. You're damn right he fucking did. What else happened in this one? Asheroka got a knockdown, like really fucking hurt early with the left hook off of a shift, and then immediately got subbed. <laughs> immediately got subbed with a fucking was it a triangle or an armbar? I'm trying to trying to remember. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I believe it was the triangle. Yeah. I, I don't think she had the... Uh, upon recollection, she was going for the armbar, didn't have it, and then transitioned to the triangle and got that. And so, yeah, she got a round one <laughs> submission. And it was just like, what the fuck's happening? It was cool, though. Had a good time. Now, let's talk about Savas Michael. 
Because this dude, this motherfucking dude, oh my lord. He has a gorgeous one too. He used that to rock Naziri in the third round. I believe it was the third round. I think main the, the biggest point that I, I took away from this fight was just simply, dude, this man's kick counters are insane. It's like every single time Naziri was throwing fucking anything, he was entering the pocket, and he was just... Michael was slipping right out the way, and he was coming right back with the counters. And it wasn't just like... It wasn't just outside low kick counters as well. It wasn't like he was just avoiding, like, retracting the lead leg to avoid the inside low kick and then coming back with an outside low kick or some shit like that. No, he's retracting the lead leg and then he's going for the switch kick to the body. He's retracting the lead leg to avoid the kick and then he's going with with push kicks down the middle. There's just such a variety and it's just like, Jesus Christ, how do you deal with that kind of, that activity and that accuracy on the counter? And well, the answer is, uh, you don't, you lose the fight. And Naziri, well, he lost the motherfucking fight. <laughs> and that was that. Uh, Superlek versus Nato. He was biting, Nato was biting on kick feints really early. And yeah, his... His, his distance management was pretty good initially, but Superlek had the better, more aggressive offense. First round was pretty close. I think I gave it to Nato 10-9, and that was a bad nut shot to immediately open the second. How fucking good. Yeah, and then I think the biggest issue for Nato was that he was getting cut up while he was on the fence. Superlek was just having his fucking way when they got on the fence. Uh, yeah, it was... Superlek, oh yeah, he gave a nut shot back as well in the third round, I believe. Yeah, his elbows, Superlek's elbows are fucking insane. They're terrifying. I, I'm not, I, I wasn't even in the cage with him, and I feel like I have PTSD from those motherfuckers. Yeah, it was um, a lot of fucking elbows. Walter Gonzalez, he was going to fight John Jonathan Haggerty. It was hilarious actually. Last week, I believe it was. He was right when we were recording. I was being all excited for this 1-157 card. And I think I got to the final like two minutes of the podcast. And I realized, because I, I saw some weird shit on, online. I was like, who the fuck is this This Jose Cruz? Josu Cruz or some shit? That's not Jonathan Haggerty. I thought Walter Gonzalez was meant to be fighting Jonathan Haggerty. Oh, well, I'm sure he still is. I'm sure this is a typo on whatever I'm looking at. No, I then found out in the final few minutes of the podcast. Oh no, John Jonathan Haggerty has got a he's got food poisoning or some shit, so he got pulled. Walter Gonzalez decided, "Fuck y'all hoes, I'm gonna come in there and flatline this motherfucker." No, not flatline him. He need need him, and was able to to get the victory in like half a minute. It was really impressive. He had a really nice one-two from really nice one-two early on and then yeah just beautiful knees on the fence bada bing bada boom that is that the Ruotolo brothers who prior to this event I had not really heard much of or seen much of they really impressed me Cade Ruotolo was able to defeat Shinya Aoki Uh, it was a 10 minute referee decision I thought Aoki did pretty damn well in this in this matchup yeah I thought he was pretty damn good Ultimately, it still went to decision, so no one got a sub. It wasn't that crazy. But then Tyru Otolo comes out and just decides to dash Gary Tonin in like... I mean, officially here it says a minute and 27 seconds. It felt like two minutes in. It didn't feel like it was 90 seconds into the fucking matchup. But shit, you know, Tyru Otolo... I mean, both of them, they've got long fucking arms and they latch up dash chokes just from anywhere. Dash chokes, the guillotine, just... Their work from the front headlock is really impressive, and that was just exemplified by Tyru Atolo against Gary Tonin. They they had like a minute feeling out process where they were both looking for takedowns, and then once they hit the ground, Ruotolo was able to get the DAS pretty quickly. It was just like, shit, okay. Sensational. The real main event, though, as much as Pet Morricot, you know, heaps of fun, and Prajan Chai was taking on Laziri. That was for the what was it? The one Muay Thai strawweight championship, I believe. As much as those fights were definitely happening, 
no one really gave a shit. Ultimately, the main event of the evening was Rod Tang versus Jacob Smith, just because everyone loves Rod Tang Jim Moignon. If you don't, then I don't know what the fuck you're doing. And it honestly felt like, I mean, first and foremost, it's one of those Rod Tang performances that you're like, wow, this is just a complete beatdown. It reminded me of his first fight when he came into one. Who was it against? I've completely forgotten. Uh, Was it Sergio? Sergio Wilson? Yeah. It was Sergio Wilson. He came in and he just beat the shit out of Sergio Wilson for three rounds. It's not fun if you're a Sergio Wilson fan, but it's damn fun if you are literally anyone else. Yeah, it felt like that performance. It was just so complete from Rod Tang. I mean, it had everything. I mean, I made a whole ass video on Rod Tang's elbows a little while ago. And if you go back in in, in a lot of his fights, he doesn't actually elbow that much. I just wanted to highlight a facet of his game that probably doesn't get highlighted as much as all the other shit there. So I, sp- I spent a whole video talking about his elbows. But in this fight, wow, I look like a fucking a proper Nostradamus because he came out and there were elbows for days. Jesus. There were so many cool uses of them as well. I mean, he has his classic stepping upwards elbow with the lead hand. That one's just sensationally cuts motherfuckers up for days with that shot. But then he has, and he, he's used this a lot, but he used it more effectively in this matchup than I've ever seen it before. He'll throw the straight right, dart into the clinch with it, and then he'll look for wrist control, fold the the right elbow over the top, and then he'll pivot off to his right, so he'll pivot around his man. And as his man is coming back to get their weight back under them, because obviously they're in the clinch, so his man kind of has to fall with him. As Rod Tang is pivoting to the right, his, his opponent has to follow him. And as such, they're, they don't have all of their weight underneath them, underneath them. They're not completely balanced. And that's the perfect time to throw another fucking elbow. And there's like three or four occasions where he just triples up on these elbows. He throws the straight right into the clinch, gets the clinch, is looking for, you know, has a single collar tie with the left hand, or maybe it's just both hands he's going for wrist control or whatever. He'll go right elbow over the top, pivot off to the side, right elbow off over the top, pivot off to the side, another right elbow over the top, and he just does that over and over again, and it's like, Jesus, dude, take it fucking easy, man, (laughs) this poor man, (laughs) he was doing great work with his left hook to the body, as always, it's Rod Tang, Rod Tang has probably my favorite kick counters, he'll catch the kick, and he just blasts you down the middle with the straight right. And he did that a couple of times against Smith. And I just started feeling bad for Smith. I was just going, damn, dude. You're really, you're really getting fucked up right now. <laughs> this isn't good at all. Man, Rod Tang's speed was just sensational. I, yeah, what can you say? There was a sensational quarterfinal performance from Rod Tang. He moves on in this this Muay Thai flyweight Grand Prix. Shit, it's really hitting it out of the park thus far, isn't it? I'm trying to see which which were all of them. So we had, you had Rod Tang versus Jacob Smith, Walter Gonzalez versus Cruz, Cruz being the replacement. Then you've got Superlek versus Nato. That was also part of the Grand Prix. And then Savas Michael versus Naziri. That was also part of the Grand Prix as well. And then you have an alternate, uh, a matchup between alternates in Kabutov and Purich, which is also a bit of a banger as well. So that was cool. So yes, fights were all fucking dope. I mean, one is essentially at this point a platform designed to elevate the four-ounce Muay Thai world. Yes. Everything else about one, you're kind of like, eh, that's cool. But what about the uh, flyweight... Muay Thai division. Hmm? I want to watch that shit. Then they had like four different performance of the night bonuses. They had Tyru Otolo, Rod Tang, Laziri, and Pep Morricot. Laziri, oh my god, I nearly didn't talk about that. Yeah, Laziri got a fucking massive upset over Prajan Chai, who came in and... I hadn't realized just how many fights this motherfucker had had. Yeah, sorry, just had to look at my notes. 338 wins on his record, and then 50-something losses. 
That's a lot of motherfucking fights for a dude. And then Joseph Laziri came in and just dad-dicked Brudgeon Chai. First round was kind of, you know, a bit back and forth. But it became very clear in the second round that Laziri's speed, man, with his doubling up with his lead hand, just fucking so good. He would throw left hook to the body and then come back up with the left hook to the top. There was one point where he was going left hook to the body and then he's coming up with the lead hook up the middle. And that's actually what appeared to cut Prajan Chai in that second round. And he opened up like a river of blood started streaming down his face. And it, it clearly affected his ability to fight. It looked like it was getting in his eyes and all that good shit. Yeah, some brutal stuff here from Laziri. There were some good switch moves as well. He had a nice sweep in the first round. I was just so impressed with his work. And then on the, the fence, there were some really nice knees, some really nice elbows. I, yeah, I think the main point I took away was ultimately just the way that he f- utilized lead hand attacks to work into other lead hand attacks. There was one point where he goes for a lead uppercut, and I swear to God, I as a viewer was thinking it was going to be a left hook to the body. And then he switches it up, and it's a, it's a lead uppercut up the middle to the head. I'm just thinking to myself, how the fuck is Prajan Chai meant to see that coming? If I, I'm not the one in the fucking cage. I'm not the one getting punched in the face. If I can't see it coming until the second it lands, then I feel like Prajan Chai's got a bit of a disadvantage here. Because, man, the speed of Laziri was just in, was just sensational. You could really tell that Laziri was getting ahead of Prajan Chai when Prajan Chai started just trying to use a mummy guard liberally. Man is extending his arms all the way out, trying to trying to break down the space between him and Laziri because he's getting eaten up at range. So he's just trying to break down the space by extending and, and catching the hands. And Laziri was coming right back and beating the shit out of him. There was one point in the third round where <laughs> I think Laziri just landed a really cool... I think it was he landed a big simultaneous right hook counter I think it was at this point and his his corner just yells out Bellissimo I might be I think I'm wrong on exactly what punch landed when this was said but yeah his whole his, his corner goes Bellissimo and shit was gorgeous I'll give him that it's a perfect way to, to to talk about this fight if you're a fan of Joseph Laziri it is if you're a fan of Prajan Chai, you probably didn't have a very fun time because it was a proper beatdown for three rounds. And then Prajan Chai retired on the stool. So yes, that is a TKO via retirement. How wild. But I'm glad to see that, that he got that he said, fuck this shit, because I really didn't need to see two more rounds of that because it, it just looked like it was going to be more of the same. Laziri's cardio, his gas tank was exceptional. He was throwing the entire time. He was on Prajan Chai basically from the beginning of the second round. The first round, he was in there and he was throwing some good shots, but it was still moderately close. In fact, I think the official scorecards, or or the scorecards, sorry, from from the booth seemed to indicate that they believed Prajan Chai won that first round. I thought it was close enough that it could have gone either way. Probably leaning Prajan Chai, but like, I thought Laziri... You know, he had a good account of himself. But then, yeah, the second that second round started, it was a beatdown from there. So, yes, that's that. Now, the big question is, should I even fucking talk about Holly Holm versus Ketlin Vieira? I don't want to talk about it. I think the only reason people are talking about it is because they think that Holly Holm got robbed. I don't think she got robbed, honestly. I think uh, it was a fucking terrible fight. And no one really got robbed because it was shit. Same thing as Rose Namajunas versus Carla Esparza. You know, first round I thought home won. She had more control time, basically. She's very strong. I think I think I said this in the preview in the previous episode of this podcast. Holly Holm is is very strong. I mean, we saw that against Cyborg. The presumption going into that fight is that if this fight gets into the clinch, Cyborg is going to be able to control those exchanges. She's going to get double underhooks, and she's gonna she's gonna push Holm up to the cage and. She's going to have her way with her, basically. But Holly really did well in the clinch in that fight. She had some success pushing Cyborg up to the fence. That's big. So it wasn't really surprising to me that Ketlin was 
being controlled in these exchanges. But this is an important note. I thought Ketlin was doing a much better job in the clinch in terms of landing shots. She was landing really nice knees. There were and, and Holm was landing knees too, but the knees she was landing were to the legs. And it didn't seem like they were really impeding Ketlin's her movement. Whereas Ketlin's coming right up the middle and, and smashing the body with some with some decent knees. Nothing fucking nothing crazy. Nothing overly sensational, just she was landing effective shots in the clinch. So I, th- I think I gave that first round to Holm. I gave the second round to Ketlin, if I'm recalling correctly. I didn't take notes for this fight. I was watching it just going, wow, why the fuck am I watching this thing? The third round, I believe, was the most contentious round. I believe, no, I think I think the third round was the most definitive. Sorry, I, I retract my statement. I think the third round was the most definitive one where most people went, oh yeah, Ketlin's kind of running away with it. And then in the fourth and the fifth, I don't think Holm did that much effective work. I, I just think Ketlin landed the more effective shots. I just think she landed the more effective shots. I don't think either of them landed particularly effective shots. I'm just saying I thought Ketlin's were more effective than Holly's. And it's, oh God, Holm looked, she looked old in this fight. She looked real old in this fight, which is a point that we'll, we'll bring up in a second when we talk about Park Jun Yong versus Eric motherfucking Anders. Yeah. Oh my god, this was... She She looked old, and her ish-ish style didn't seem to be particularly effective. She was just running forward again. I'll admit, there weren't as many pullback left-hand counters as I thought there were going to be. I thought Ketlin was going to come forward more, or she was going to chase more, but honestly, I thought she was a little more disciplined in her striking approach. I'd forgotten that she was with Andre Pedneris, who's not a bad fucking coach, obviously. Aldo's worked with him since he came into the game, so he can't be that terrible. Yeah, I thought I thought she was disciplined enough in her approach. I, I think part of the reason that people were so vehement against Vieira after the decision was read out, why people were so irritated at the decision, is because... Andre, her coach, was was basically saying, "You've got to work. You you've got to go. You're losing this fight." And he kept harping on and on. But I mean, a coach can just say that because they're unsure and it's incredibly close. So that instead of saying that, they they tell their their student, they tell their fighter, "Get out there. You're losing this fight. You got to push." He could have been saying it in that sense, and even if he wasn't. Retrospectively, that shouldn't affect the way that the judges scored the fight or people viewed the fight in the moment. My last point was a bit dumb. I, I don't really... That that last bit there kind of got away from me. But yes, I, I don't think... Hmm. I don't know if that... I, I think that's part of the reason why people believe that Ketlin lost this fight and Holly was robbed. Ultimately, I think we were all robbed. We were all robbed of a good main event. So, you know... Make of that what you will. Actually, I put a note down here to talk about open scoring in a, in a second. I was going to talk about that at the end because it became a whole big thing this week. As with any supposed robbery, motherfuckers get out their pitchforks and go, open scoring. I mean, I kind of, I agree with open scoring to a, uh, I don't know. I, I saw some statistics about it this week. I can't remember which account posted them. I can't remember whether it was Reddit or Twitter or what the fuck it was, but it was essentially a bunch of statistics backing up the notion that actually, because, you know, the the argument against open scoring has always been, well, if a fighter knows they're winning coming into the third round, they're going to coast. But then there was a study done, there were statistics taken on events where open scoring was in place, and it found that most of the time the fighter that was actually up going into that final round, didn't coast. They went harder. So, you know, that's interesting. I, I, don't, think I'm, I don't think I'm against open scoring at all. I, I'd probably welcome it. But is, is Holly Holm versus Ketlin Vieira going to be your justification for changing the scoring system or changing the way, the, the transparency of the scoring system? Really? This shouldn't be the justification. There are worse decisions out there. Far worse decisions out there. 
decisions which don't bring up the open scoring debate. They probably should. This one isn't the fight. This isn't the one to stake your fucking claim on. This was just a trash-ass fight where no one really did that much significant shit. Okay? Cool. In the co-main event, Michelle Piera versus Santiago Ponzinibbio. Banger of a fight. I probably would have given this one to Santiago, actually. Michelle Piera came away with the victory. He got a split decision. I'm just now actually looking through the cards. And 30-27 in favor of Piera. Hmm. I don't know about that. I don't know. I think that second round, at least from my vantage point, the second round seemed pretty definitively in Ponzinibbio's favor. Favor. I thought Piera came out and was doing a really good job in the first round. Great lateral movement. And he was doing something which he, he didn't really do when he first came into the UFC. He, he always has that very level stance, okay? So he gets flattened up to the fence and he gets out that, that level stance and he feints both directions and he moves off in both directions quite well. The issue is obviously he ends up on the fence so often, or this was the issue back when he first came into the UFC, and even before when he was getting touched up by Dusko Todorovic on the regional scene. He gets flattened up against the fence, and he kind of just, he just kind of spazzes his way off the fence, and it seems a bit, a bit haphazard, or it has seemed a bit haphazard in the past. As of recently, in this fight, and against Andre Fialio a little while ago, I thought he was doing a much better job of feinting in both directions and and getting off to the side, and then also coming back with counters when his opponents were throwing at him. Ponzinibbio was trying to throw the double jab cross or throw the, the left hook cross as Pierre is circling out to his left, and as in Ponzinibbio's left, he's circling out in that direction. And Pierre, instead of just trying to bail and... and retake the center of the octagon he's coming back with a counter right hand i saw that in the first round i believe and i was just impressed i was just impressed by the fact that he wasn't it wasn't all just about moving off the cage it was also how can i use this as an opportunity to land a good shot i fucking hate the ufc apex that this seems like a weird transition but i mean it's all about the same fight i dislike the apex on certain occasions a lot of the time, I'm like, fine, whatever. You didn't need that big of a crowd for this fight. Who gives a shit? But there are times like this fight where, fuck me, it is really irritating because there were times when Michelle Piera is landing this... He's throwing this jab to the body and then coming over the top with the overhand right, and he it, he turned Ponzinibbio's head around multiple times. He had a few really good shots with it throughout the fight. I think one of them got proper recognition from the booth and the crowd. And then he did it a couple of other times in the later rounds, and it's like no one gave a shit. And I'm just sitting there going, did y'all motherfuckers see that? It's very clear that he landed a big shot on Ponzinibbio, and no one seems to respond to it. It's fucking weird, man. It's weird shit. I thought Santiago was doing a great job with the jab to the body. Jab to the body looked fucking great. His jab just generally looked sensational. There was one point in, oh, I'm going to say the third round, but I might be wrong, where he just he threw three or four jabs in a row and he was pivoting off of each one. Looked really good. It was funny, though, because there were points where they were both trying to counter jab simultaneously and they were both slipping to the inside. I just found that really funny. They're both doing the exact same motion simultaneously. It was, yeah, it just looked kind of funny. The end of the third round was fucking dope. Yeah, this was a really cool fight. Michelle Piera walks away with the victory. Again, I reiterate, I don't think I personally would have given them, him the decision. I probably, I'd probably, I'd give him the first round 10-9, and then the second and the third I'd give to Ponzinibbio 10-9. So I give it 29-28 to Ponzinibbio. But eh, it is kind of cool that we're, we're going to be able to see Piera against the upper echelon of this division because I think he has worked very hard to be more disciplined in his game planning, more disciplined in the way that he responds to adversity in fights. We saw that against Fialio. He he suffered some adversity in the first round of that fight, and then he came back in the second round, and I thought he looked really good, really calm, really composed. Yeah, good shit. And then he has a pretty fucking tough fight against Ponzinibbio here, and even when he was struggling, even when there were points where I thought Ponzinibbio was getting into a good rhythm, I thought... Piera was still doing a good job of kind of composing himself, doing the right things. 
He took some hard low kicks from Ponzinibbio, which we anticipated. Ponzinibbio, his low kicking game has always been pretty impressive, as we saw against Neil Magny back in the day. But Piera still maintained pretty decent movement into the third round. Nothing, I mean, he was still, he was pretty gassed, but he was still pretty disciplined in his in his stance and in his movement. And that's that's all I want to see. If you're gassed, you're gassed. But if you can still maintain some of your fundamentals, that's fucking ideal. Chidi and Jokwani elbowed the fuck out of Dusko Todorovic, which is sad because Todorovic was doing pretty well. <laughs> I like Mr. Todorovic. He came into the UFC. I thought he looked interesting. He had that loss against Soriano in a bit of a banger. And then... I don't know. This this was a bit disappointing because I thought he had the right approach. He was he shot pretty early on. He had a good single and then Njokwani Njokwani uh got the front headlock threatened the Das choke which seemed to stall Todorovic's progression. But then Todorovic was able to get him down. He trapped the left left leg and then he was able to, you know, do the Habib Double leg grapevine. Double leg grapevine? No, he just like... He just trapped the legs in between his own. That was cool. Then he lost it by going for a fucking rear naked choke, which he probably shouldn't have attempted. It's like he was watching Chase Super in the back before the fight and went, you know what, fuck it. Submission over position, baby! That's what it seemed like. Yeah, I thought Todorovic was doing a great job with the underhooks. There was some good hard knees in the clinch from Njokwani as he stepped around Dusko with a with a single collar tie. And then it was a there was a point where they got into the clinch. And Todorovic is actually the one who kind of initiated the clinch exchange because he got double collar ties. So he got his double collar ties and felt like, hey motherfucker, I've got the advantage here. But then he lost the double collar ties and then went back to single. So it was, it was they both had single collar ties, one each. And in Jokwani Oh, man. Got the single-collar tie with the left hand, and then he went over the top with the right elbow and fucking flatlined Todorovic. And that was that. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Cool. So, yeah. It's cool, though. Injokwani managed to get back up, and his striking looked dope as fuck. He threw in a really nice push kick at one point, I think about 30 seconds before the finish. I don't know, man. I thought he looked really good. Disappointing to see Todorovic get get knocked out again, because I like the dude. Yeah. What else is there on this card? Let's talk about how sad Eric Anders looked. Man, as as we as we alluded to when we were talking about Holly Holm, and I referenced this fight, the athleticism. So much of Eric Anders has been his athleticism. Dude's fast. Dude has always been really fast. But fuck, man. He looked so slow here. Oh my god, he looked so slow. He was getting caught with the uppercut from 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 Park consistently because he's throwing his left hand and his head is dipping all the way down. It's like he's scared of the punches coming back his way. So he throws the left hand and he just he just points his head towards the ground. So he, he can't really see where he's fucking throwing half the time because his head's down. And he doesn't really have a good lead hand doesn't really have a good lead hand at all, and there there was, like, one punch he landed. I took in my notes somewhere that he had a good... He had a good lead hand shot. I'm looking through my notes now. The note that I have specifically... Looking through my notes, there's one point where I go, Yo! With a lot of O's. A good jab from Anders. How good? That's about it. <laughs> just doesn't throw his fucking lead hand that much at all. There were some decent takedowns he had by decent takedowns. I used I used the plural term there. I think he had literally two of them. He failed a lot of motherfucking takedowns. It felt like he was going for a single leg every goddamn second, and he never got single legs. Never got single legs. One of them, he got... Did he get the knee pick? Yeah, no, he got a knee pick. He had an underhook on the left side and then went with a knee pick on the right side and then just barreled Park over. And it reminded me of, of Henry Cejudo, who will get a reference in the Chase Hooper fight as well, I believe. Yes, 100%. Oh, but then there were, 
even when Anders was able to get Park down, Park was threatening the guillotine, and it just completely stunted all progression from Anders. Oh, it was just so frustrating to watch if you if you like Anders at all. Because I know the guy can swang and bang. I know the guy can put on a fucking entertaining fight. Go back and watch his main event with Tiago Santos back in the day. The, the one where, where it was stopped at the end of the third round because Eric had no gas at all. Nothing left. Just, like, I know he can swang and bang. Of course, after that, he then had that loss against Elias Theodoro, which is, uh, oh, it's bad. It's bad. But this, I feel like so much of his career has been me irritated because he just hasn't thrown enough. He's been too timid. He has not been willing to wade into the fire and exchange, where he, he's got the advantages in terms of speed and power against a lot of these guys he's fighting. But he's, yeah, he's just not confident enough to get in there and, and throw those hands, throw that left hand with conviction. And that was what irritated me in his first loss against Lyoto Machida back in 2018. That was a main event. That was not a good fight. It was pretty fucking boring because Anders spent the entire time building up to his left hand. And then when he would throw it, he'd have success, but he just didn't throw it that much. And I get it. It's Lyoto Machida. He's got some good distance management tools. But if you break down the space on him, you can land and you can you can cause a lot of fucking damage. His chin is not that exceptional. I mean, this is back in 2018. He's like mega washed now, but he was still washed in 2018. Derek Brunson flatlined him like, it felt like six months after that fight. So, you know, Anders 100% could have gone in there and just, just spammed the left hand and probably gotten a fucking finish. But he was too timid, lost that fight via split decision. He got that KO over Tim Williams, then had that loss against Tiago Sanders, and then the Elias Theodoro fights there, and that just feels like the embodiment of this man just, if his left hand, if he's not completely 100% confident in his left hand landing, he is useless. Not useless, but just frustrating. Then he had that no contest with Darren Stewart a little while ago with the illegal knee, and then he beat Darren Stewart recently, but then he lost a submission to Andre Munez. Munez, sorry. Oh, man, he's just so up and down, isn't he? And this fight was just terrible. It was just terrible. I didn't like it. I Honestly, I thought he should have... I, I probably would have given it to him. I I thought he won 29-28. And on one of the judges' scorecards, he was given the victory. But yeah, Park... Fuck, I ain't even gonna argue with it because I thought Park had the significantly more... I ha- I thought he had the, the more effective striking. So fuck it. That's, that's a significant part of the criteria. And give it to him. Jalton Almeida defeated Parker Porter. Short notice heavyweight fight. He threw a push kick into a really fast double leg. And then he got... he got a, There was two fights in a row, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Joseph Holmes versus Alan Amadovsky was the prelim headliner. And in that fight, Holmes landed a step-in knee, got the knockdown, and then during the ensuing scramble... Got a rear naked choke. Didn't have any hooks in at all. And got it. And the prior fight was Almeida versus Parker Porter. And I believe... Almeida was basically in mount. He was in side mount. Not side control. He was in mount, but off to like the side. Which I guess is side control. I don't know. It was fucking weird. And he got a fucking rear naked choke from it. It was odd. Two fights in a row where neither rear naked choke had hooks. But whatever. Jalta now made it look good, though, so I'm excited to see him when he actually goes back down a light heavyweight. How good. Euros Medic made me look like a fucking idiot because I spent the entire fight... If you look at my notes, my notes are basically, wow, his straight left is going to get him into a lot of trouble because he would throw the straight left naked and Omar Morales was coming back with these left hook counters and was getting so close, so close. And I just thought... Euros Medic is going to step in with one of these straight lefts and he's going to get flatlined. And lo and behold, he did not get flatlined. Instead, he did the flatlining. Yeah. So, congrats. Congrats. He got a straight left and then I think he got an initial knockdown. Then he got another straight left. I don't think he got the knockdown off, the knockout off of that. I think it was a it was like a left hook into a right hook that finally finished Omar Morales off. But yes, Euros Medic. Really uh, made me look like a fucking idiot getting that prediction wrong. Yeah, there was just a bunch of shit that I thought he was getting was getting countered too effectively with. 
Like, he was throwing his jab, and it was getting countered with the straight right from Morales quite consistently. I mean, he avoided... There was there was an interesting exchange where... And it was the point where I thought Medich was, was finally getting his timing back, actually. Where, yeah, his jab got countered repeatedly with the straight right. But he was circling away from the right hand, so it completely negated Morales's right hand. I'm I'm not always a big fan of preaching that what boxing coaches do. If you are a southpaw or you are sparring or fighting a southpaw, a beginner boxer coach, boxing coach will say basically religiously, move to the outside, put your foot outside their lead foot, and then come down the middle with your rear hand. That's what they will espouse over and over and over again. Of course, it's a whole lot more technical than that. And there are so many more approaches you can take. You do not have to do that one fucking thing. Just because it's Southpaw versus Orthodox doesn't mean you have to spend the entire time stepping outside their lead foot and, and focusing on that element of the game. I mean, fuck it. Conor McGregor's right there. He is a Southpaw whose best weapon was the pullback straight left. And half of, like, yes, a lot of those knockdowns and knockouts happened as he's he's got outside foot placement. But there were also a lot of time, like in the Eddie Alvarez fight, one of the first knockdowns against Alvarez comes with a pullback straight left counter and his foot's on the inside. He's pulling back to his rear hand. He's pulling into the quote-unquote power side. I don't know why I, I did the quote-unquote thing. The right hand is obviously the power side of Eddie Alvarez. But what I'm, I'm pointing out there is that he's moving into the side that a, your traditional beginner boxer coach will, boxing coach will say, no, never move that direction. You can. You can move in that direction. You can have success. But it is kind of, it is funny when you have an individual like Medich come out here and prove that old adage very accurate in some circumstances yes in some circumstances it's fucking accurate if you move to the outside of that lead hand and that lead foot then yeah you can get away from the rear hand fucking clean as shit i think going to the outside in a southpaw orthodox matchup is better if you just want to escape if you're stuck on the fence and you want to get off and and you you don't want to get hit with the rear hand while you're doing it then yeah move to the outside but i think if you want to counter, often it's a lot better to pull back towards your rear hand. So move in the other direction because it'll keep you in tight. It'll keep you in closer to your opponent and that's when you can land the rear hand uppercut. That's when you can hit the pullback straights. Yeah, that's when you can hit the catch and pitch counters and shit like that. So yeah, I thought Medich kind of started off a little bit predictable. Oh, yeah, they mentioned he came from King's MMA, and I was just like, yeah, of course he does. He's an aggressive striker with a really good straight left. I mean, like, his straight left didn't start off really good. It started off disappointing because he was getting countered half of the time he was throwing it. But, you know, it, it got to a point where it was pretty, it was landing consistently, and then he eventually got the fucking finish with it. And I'm like, King's MMA, man, that's all they fucking pump out. You know, they pumped out Marm Vittori, Southpaw, who's developed a pretty decent straight left. Kelvin Gastelum, whose best weapon will always be his straight left. I was about to say I was about to say Fabricio Doom, but definitely not Fabricio Doom. But yeah, no, that that's a bunch of motherfuckers. But Neil Darius, is he Southpaw? He might actually be Orthodox. I think I've just disproven my own thesis. Anyway, what else was there? Jonathan Martinez defeated Vince Morales. I thought Vince Morales was actually doing some interesting things here. He realized at one point that, well, shit, okay, I need to flurry in on this motherfucker. I got to break down the space if I want any chance of causing him issue. And he landed some interesting stuff. There was this off-tempo counter he landed at one point in the second round. I believe it was the second round where... You know, Morales went shifting straight right. And then, so he was switched into southpaw off of the straight right. And then he threw this cheeky left hook. And it actually, like, it landed. It was cool. And then he tried it again, like, 15 seconds later. But Martinez went orthodox and avoided the left hook a, a whole lot easier in that circumstance. So, you know, didn't land fucking flush. Yeah, I thought, I thought Jonathan Martinez looked really good. Low kicking game looked sensational. 
really good pullback pullback jab counters. There was one point where where Vince Morales comes forward with a left hook into a straight right. And Martinez threw the check hook, which we'll talk about in a second. He threw the check hook and it kind of caught the lead hook of Morales on the elbow. So it took all the sting away from that shot. And then he pulled back, avoided the right hand, and then threw this this counter jab that popped Morales' head right back. It was really cool. I believe that was the first round. Now, I just mentioned the check hook. Jonathan Martinez sometimes relies a little too much on that check hook. I think he's going to get Luke Rockholded soon. That's what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, if if he was fighting someone a little better than Vince Morales, <laughs> I think someone would take advantage of the fact that in so many of these exchanges, yes, there were a lot of exchanges where he was countering with the jab or he's countering with the pullback left hand. You know, th- there are instances where he's doing that, sure. But there were so many instances where he was throwing the check hook as a counter for Vince Morales coming forward. And I think if he gets a better opponent, I think someone's going to feint a jab, draw out the check hook, and they're going to crack him over the top of the left hook or some shit like that. Because, ugh. There were so many occasions where he like he doubled and tripled up on it. He'd throw the check hook as a response to a feint. He'd throw the check hook in response to a step in from Morales. He'd throw the check hook again in another exchange. And you're like, dude, stop throwing it over and over and over again as a counter because it's a little bit predictable at this point. But hey, he got the victory. I thought he looked really fundamentally sound throughout the course of the fight. It's just that check hook gives me a little bit of fear going into the future. Oh, well. Chase Super defeated Felipe Colares. Yeah, that was cool. I like some of the takedowns Chase Super got. He got some shit from, was it double underhooks, and then went for the inside triple? I think it was the outside trip, actually. And yeah, I saw that and went, oh, wow. So you've been watching Henry Cejudo on BJJ Fanatics, huh? Cool. That's good to see. Yeah, so that was fun. Hooper just looked like he drowned Kolaris. His striking's come off. It's come quite far. There were points where he was throwing the jab cross and I was going, wow, that looks like a very competent shot right there. Impressive stuff. Yeah, basically drowned Kolaris. That was cool. That was cool. Good fight. All in all, kind of shitty fight night event. I mean, it wasn't bad, but... And I'm glad that it was only five fights on the main card. Some of these terrible cards, they just decide, you know what, we're going to chuck six fights on this motherfucker. Just just to really amplify the pain that our, our audience is going through right now. Fortunately, they didn't do that on this occasion. They they spared us a little bit of... They spared us that bullshit. But yeah, no, well, it wasn't great. As so many other pundits bring up week on week, it's just irritating that the UFC is coasting at this point. They know that they're going to get a guaranteed payout through the ESPN deal. ESPN mandates that they have to provide a certain amount of shows in a calendar year or a certain amount of shows throughout the course of their their contract. And so the UFC is just committed to putting on these events at the Apex. The Apex, they, they own... I don't know whether they own the property, the commercial property that it stands on, but obviously they own the facility. So they they can run them whenever they fucking want. They get to charge a bunch of money to randoms who who weren't even responding during the Piera versus Ponzinibbio fight. So I don't know what the fuck. I don't know why they're paying as much money as they are just for a cool Instagram pic. Whatever, I guess. They're able to charge all this money and they don't have to deal with a random arena. They don't have to deal with paying anyone else. They don't deal with paying vendors or any shit. They All they have to do is they have to... They just put on this internal show and they get paid by ESPN. And, like, let's be fucking honest here. Like, some of these fights, entertaining, sure, but... Not cream of the crop fighters. Not cream of the crop. This is... Some of the card quality. This one's not as bad. I thought the Blahovich Rukic card last week was fucking way worse in terms of some of the. There were some bums. There were some bums, bruz, on that card who I was like, 
I was like, damn, this is bad. <laughs> How the fuck are you going to show me these motherfuckers? But, yeah. Coming up soon, not this weekend, the weekend after, actually, is the Volkov-Rosenstruck card, which, oh, fuck, that's probably... I don't know. I feel like Volkov can actually get a decent fight out of Rosenstruck. Rosenstruck ain't getting it out of himself. Let's be real there. There's some decent fights on that card. Dan Ige is back against Mo- Movsar Evluev. Fuck, that's good. Zumagulov is taking on Molina. Cool. Ode Osborne's back. Fuck yeah, he's fighting Adashev. I'm happy with that. JJ Aldrich, the queen. The queen herself. I actually do really like JJ Aldrich. I think her striking is really good. I mean, she's been working out uh, She's been working out in Colorado with Rosenami Yunus quite a bit in the the past few years so I think her striking's come quite far so that'll be fun there's a bunch of randoms I don't know Joe Selecki's back cool Alonzo Manningfield I don't know if I actually want to watch that fight but you know he's there yeah there's just so many fights where I'm like really this is all you have this is the UFC this is the premier organization I expect this out of fucking Bellator but not you guys anyway let's talk about some other random shit because it doesn't look like there's a whole lot going on this week. I don't know if there's a one card. There's one one fifty eight, but that's taking place June third. So yeah, then no, that's next week. And that'll be interesting. The Senchai versus Larson. Simon Carson. Oh yes, Australian Simon Carson from Absolute MMA. One of the one of the head coaches at Absolute MMA Collingwood. He's taking on Buchecha. I believe it's on short notice because I, I just saw a bunch of shit on Instagram about it today. And I went, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> That'll be interesting. I'm very interested to see how that goes for Mr. Carson. I, I hope he picks up the the win. We'll see though. Buchecha's a hard fucking out. <laughs> He's a hard out for the one heavyweight division. Also, Bichetta was doing some commentary for the Ruotolo matchups on one one fifty seven. Thought he did pretty good, honestly. Yeah. Anyway, let fuck all this shit. I, I'm I'm procrastinating with. Let's just talk about some of the news this week. Not news this week. It's basically news from like the past twenty four hours. Realistically, Armin Sarukian's going to be taking on Matthias Gamrot, and they're going to be headlining the June twenty fifth fight night card, which is a fucking banger of a fight sensational fight very excited to see that over the course of five rounds i think armin sarukian is that motherfucker let's hope he can get through gamrot but gamrot oh he's damn good as well i just want to see sarukian i just want to see this motherfucker scrambling against the upper echelon of this division is that so much to ask is that so much to fucking ask i want to see him versus like michael chandler i think that would be fucking banging you know and i think no one's going to say no to an Islam Makashev Armin Sarukian rematch in a year or two. Whether whether Islam wins the belt or not, I think that's a fight a lot of people want to watch, or at the very least I want to watch. Fuck what other people want. I want that shit. Yes. What else was there? Anderson Silva fought this week. He, he fought against Bruno Azedo. Azedo? Machado or some shit? They had a different... The... the spoiler on reddit like the the highlight clip on reddit had bruno azedo as the the name of the individual but then you click on the you click on the clip and his fight on the his name on the screen was machado or some shit i'm like bitch manny machado when did he when he he go from baseball to fucking mma not mma boxing i didn't pick up the memo but yeah anderson silver looked good how fucking delightful Fight Jake Paul, you know. Put on a banger with him. That'll be great. Now, let's quickly just talk about... Terrence McKinney came out very recently. He was talking about, oh, I believe Charles Oliveira is the GOAT of my division, the lightweight division, over Khabib. Now, his specific comments were as follows. Khabib the Magomedov did great. He was undefeated. But Charles Oliveira, to me, is about to be the GOAT of our weight class. About is also is an important word because he's not saying that he is right now he's saying that he could very well be that's my opinion because he can strike he can grapple and he's just really shown what a champion is all of his fights have been entertaining i haven't seen one boring fight from him and i can name a couple of boring fights that i've seen from habib 
they're not in the same playing field. Oliveira is 100% better. It's weird. It, it started like he was unsure about what he was saying, and then as he went on, he just became more confident, held a lot more conviction about the statement he was making. Yeah, it's interesting. I think... Khabib is weird because ultimately he only had a couple of fights where he was fighting the cream of the crop, you know? He fought Michael Johnson and Edson Barboza, who are great fighters, but they're clearly, they're kind of gatekeepers. I think we can all agree Michael Johnson and Edson Barboza, even at the, that time, were, were sort of being relegated into a gatekeeper position. And then he goes on from the Barboza fight, beats, I think his next fight was against... Alia Quinta for for the belt. Obviously, it was it was intended to be Tony Ferguson. Tony Ferguson fucked up his his knee, tripping over that cable, and then all the shenanigans of UFC two twenty nine went down. He ended up beating Alia Quinta for the the championship, and then that's kind of when that's when his record really started being bolstered because the Barboza win was fucking dope, but and the RDA win back in twenty fourteen was dope as well. But he hadn't, like, RDA wasn't at the peak of his powers there. I mean, yes, it was only about a year before RDA went and washed the fuck out of Anthony Pettis, but he wasn't the RDA that was the cream of the crop, you know? But then, you know, he comes back from UFC 229, he wins the belt against against Quinta. And then he goes on and he defeats Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor's a fucking sensational victory. I know that was with a couple of years layoff. Doesn't feel as significant. In retrospect, it's very easy to be like, oh, you know, he just he beat a washed Conor McGregor. Who cares? Um, but I, I still think that is a very, very impressive victory. An incredible victory, honestly. And then the submission over Dustin Poirier looked sensational in that fight. Just drowned Poirier. And then same thing with Gaethje. Just drowned him. First round had a... There was a little bit of adversity for him dealing with some of the low kicks, but ultimately when he wanted to get in on that those takedowns, he was getting in very successfully and very quickly. And then he finishes it early in the second round. So I think he has three really good wins in that division. But then there's other victories where you're like, eh, you know, cool. Who was the individual? Was it? Was it Trujillo or was it T-Bow? I think it was Gleason T-Bow. That was the one which was quite controversial and people actually did score against Khabib because he was getting takedowns but he wasn't doing shit with them. And T-Bow was just basically, he was standing up. I do think Khabib won that fight but it wasn't the most convincing victory ever, you know? He's got some... He's got some great wins in there, in here, no doubt, but... Here's the thing. I think Khabib, I, I think with a victory over Islam Makashev, yeah, I would go as far to say that Charles Oliveira is the best individual in light, or the you know, is the goat of the division. I think the argument centers around what are we looking at specifically? Are we looking at the prowess of the fighter in question, or are we, or are we looking at their accolades? Because there are lots of individuals, and I know motherfuckers clown on on him. There, here's an example of what I'm talking about. Max Kellerman. And that's why I said I know people clown on him. Some of y'all are probably smirking and going, really? You're going to really reference Max Kellerman? But he, the way that he talks about Floyd Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao, obviously Mayweather won their fight, but he believes Manny Pacquiao has a much more respectable record and is much higher in that goat discussion versus versus Mayweather because of all of his accolades. So accolades can kind of be separated from like the technical side of a fighter. Khabib is the scariest fighter I think I've ever seen fight. There were he just carried this this aura about him that he was untouchable and the way he would fight people it enhanced that aura. The way that he just just manhandled Michael Johnson, the way that he manhandled Edson Barboza for 15 straight minutes, just beat the shit out of him. 
And then he took that spinning heel kick in the third round, albeit he was rolling with the shot a bit, so he took some of the sting off. But he just he took that fucking spinning heel kick and just walked through and continued beating the shit out of Barboza. It's just dope. So I think he is he's one of the most imposing figures in mixed martial arts history. And that individual in a fight could beat anyone in lightweight history. But if we're talking about accolades, Oliveira's starting to develop an incredible reputation, beating Chandler, finishing him early in the second round, beating Poirier, finishing him relatively early in the third round, beating Gaethje, beating him in the first round, knocking all these guys down as well, not just submitting them, not just doing his bread and butter, but he's finishing them He's finishing them off of knockdowns. He's doing great work with the hands. He's getting hit himself, sure, but that's just part of his style. He's he's ultimately getting the results. And then, obviously, you know, he's got victories. He's got victories over so many motherfuckers, Oliveira does, because his record is so long and so impressive. He's been around the game for so fucking long that it his record just stretches down and down. You've got to scroll for a while on Tapology with that motherfucker. Yeah. I don't know. I think with a couple more, even just with the the Markashev win, because lightweight is such an open weight class. It hasn't really had that definitive goat in the same way that welterweight did. It's starting to be contested a bit. Like GSP was obviously the welterweight goat, and now Usman's kind of chasing after that, chasing after that mantle, and has has racked up a good amount of defenses. I mean, flyweight has that in Demetrius. Featherweight's got that in, I mean, it's very debatable nowadays because there are lots of people who are saying Max Holloway is the, the featherweight goat. But I'd say a lot of people still believe Jose Aldo is the featherweight goat. Yeah, Fedor was that kind of thing. He just he ruled over that division for so long. And then, and Lightweight just hasn't had that person. Hasn't had that person who's really carved out carved their way through the division and just put a stamp on it. So it's a bit it's open now. Anyone can take it, you just gotta come and take it. Yeah. I think I think Oliveira could very well assert himself as the lightweight goat with a victory over Makashev. Or maybe two more victories. Makashev would be incredibly impressive, I think, because he is just so dominant himself. Just so dominant that I think that would just be, it'd be a real good head to go on the wall for Oliveira. Anyway, I have waffled for over an hour. I started this episode talking about how, no, 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 I will not waffle. I will be concise. And I have managed to completely, completely ignore what I said. So yeah, there's not a lot going on in the mixed martial arts world this coming weekend. I might talk about some shit. Oh, jeez. Is there... No, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do next week. Next week's probably just going to be, yeah, just a preview episode for a bunch of shit for 1-158 for Volker versus Rosenstruck. There'll probably be a Bellator event that I will semi-talk about but not actually talk about that much. Eh, who fucking knows? Yeah, I don't know. I've I've spent the past two weeks working a whole lot, so it's been a bit, it's been a bit all over the shop. And some of these shittier fight night events are kind of making me feel a bit lethargic about the whole process. But I think once we hit UFC two seventy five, that's such a banger of a card. Tashira versus Prohaska. Ah. Oh. There's some damn good fights on that. Our, our boy Andre Fialio has taken on Australia's own Jake Matthews. The real main event of the uh, the event. And Manel Cape's back versus Bontorin. Fuck, I, I completely forgot that was happening. Yeah, and Jack Della Maddalena is fighting Ameev. Ameev. Ameev? Ameev. I've seen him fight before, but I suddenly cannot pronounce his fucking name. But yeah, no, Jack Della Maddalena. He's back. Fuck yeah. Some great fights on that card. Once that fight, that event rolls around, it'll be all good. I will be 
I'll be having a, I'll be having a day. Also, hold the fuck up. I nearly just forgot about this, but I opened up the UFC 275 Wikipedia page and I just saw the road to UFC Singapore thing. And I just want to take a moment to jerk myself off because as the Wikipedia for this event states, during fight week, the UFC will host the opening quarterfinal round of Road to UFC Singapore at the same venue, that being the Singapore Indoor Stadium, with two five-bout events for each day for a total of 10 bouts per day. The 32 contestants for the tournament are expected to come from China, India, Indonesia, Japan, Korea, the Philippines, and Thailand. Additionally, they're going to be having... But that was meant to be a drum roll. Sean Etchell. You remember one of the motherfuckers that I put in my prospect watch video for Australia alongside Jack Jenkins and Cooper Royal? Yeah, I pu- I chucked Sean Etchell in there and he's going to be he's going to be at that event. He's going to be at, in the road to UFC thing. This motherfucker's about to be in the UFC, isn't he? And I'm just going to be sitting here going, "Bah, I told you so, you motherfuckers. I fucking told you so." Bah. Just Swinging my dick and my tongue around like, ha, 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 eat it, eat it, bitch. I see these things. I predict these things. Anyway, yeah, now that I've I've done that, I'll let you go. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. It's been an hour and six minutes. I hope you have a sensational week. I hope your weekend's not exceedingly boring, given that there's fuck all fights going on. There's like a KSW card, and that's about it. I hope, I hope the next seven to whatever days are fun for you. Anyway, have a good night. Bye.